0: Welcome to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. At Evolution NHS, we're committed to helping people and NHS organisations realise their potential. The goal is to develop deep relationships with individuals, build trust to make doing business easier. We collaborate with NHS organisations to help them build high-performing digital teams. We achieve this by curating and sharing insights into the ever-evolving NHS and digital industry's best practices. I'm Rose from Evolution Recruitment, and today I'm your host. Uh, We've got a fantastic lineup today. So we have four leaders and we're going to be discussing data. But before we get to that, the panel is Zohir Kapasi, Phil Welywell, Chris Reynolds, and Matt Hennessy. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect official position or policy of their organizations. So we'll start with introductions and hear from the panelists themselves before we move on to the discussion. So with that, uh, Phil, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yeah, thanks, Rose. So,
1: uh, Phil Waywell, I'm Director of Digital Partnerships. So, I'm based here at the Yorkshire Number AHSN, we commonly refer to them as Academic Health Science Networks. Uh, but I'm actually co-funded by the three integrated care systems uh, across Yorkshire Number. So it's a new role. I've been in post about six months. Quite a broad portfolio across different aspects of digital. But the thing that really motivates me in my role is thinking about how we can make best use of our data infrastructure uh, to improve patient access, experience and outcomes.
0: Excellent. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for joining us as well. And Chris, moving on to you.
2: Hi, yeah. So, uh, I'm Chris Reynolds. I'm the Chief Information Officer at Ts Lear Valley Foundation Trust. So we are a provider of mental health, learning disability and autism related services in um, across the Northeast of England. So we stretch from Durham down to where Phil may be. I don't know, in York, he may be there, I don't know. Um, and we provide all of the whole range of mental health services. So from forensic services to um, if you're feeling a bit down and you go to your GP and he gives you some counseling. Um, so um, I, I guess I'm a chief information officer I run IG, um, technical teams. Data teams um, project management teams um, and I guess I'm really interested in in just transforming healthcare that's the way I like to think about it um, I'm interested in trying to get our clinical colleagues to to use um, technology in the best way possible to improve patient care that's what I'm about.
0: love that. Thank you so much and thanks again So um, here, if you can come in next please.
3: Yeah, thanks, Rose. So my name is Zork Palsy. I'm Head of Data and AI at the Health Research Authority. And our primary remit is to make it easier to conduct AI and data-driven research. And we do this by um, providing um, approvals and assurances that are pertinent to the development, but also adoption of the most promising AI and data-driven interventions. Uh, We do this by uh, providing clarity on the complexities associated with the legal, ethical, and privacy issues underpinning data use for research purposes. And uh, what I'm really passionate about is really accelerating uh, early stage AI and data-driven research by providing guidance on the relevant regulatory pathways and options for data access, sharing, and adoption readiness.
0: Thank you, cheers. Uh, and lastly, uh, Matt, if you can come in.
4: Thanks, Rose, uh, and hello, fellow panel members. Uh, I'm Matt Hennessy. I'm the Chief Intelligence and Analytics Officer at NHS Greater Manchester, uh, that brings together ten former CCGs, um, the Clinical Commissioning Groups, um, and my role is to oversee data and uh, and intelligence and insight, and it, it's the latter of those two that I'm really passionate about. I mean, data, data's inert, really, unless you do something with it. So I'm I'm really passionate about making sure that the right decisions, the right actionable insight uh, is derived from the data. Brilliant.
0: Right. So we'll go on to our questions now. So we've heard from our panelists. What we'll do is we'll start with Matt's question. Um, the more data we have, the more analysis we can do and the more questions we can ask. How can we protect our workforce from burnout and ensure our intelligence and insight is value-driven? Matt, what was your thought process behind this?
4: Um, just that I th- I think uh, probably as much as uh, a result of the pandemic, but um, data and analysis has, has been moved really into the forefront of, of decision-making. And uh, as we get more and more data, there's the, the the questions just seem to come in exponentially. You, you, you start um, you start and you produce a product and you say there's the analysis. People go, that's oh, absolutely fab. Can you just add this in? Or can you just and and it becomes a never iterative process. Um, and so it's very difficult to to avoid mission creep and to 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 constrain uh, analysis to to answer the, the right question. So um, so yeah, I'm interested about how we can protect our workforce because i think just like everywhere across the nhs the people have been going at this for about three years solidly and um, and it doesn't seem to be letting up and and we're a victim of our own success in some respects but um i'll i'll uh, defer to the, the wisdom of the crowd here so what do
3: others think
0: yeah really? i'll i'll go um, into zoe so, hey, do you want to give your answer or background on what your thoughts are
3: no, I think it's a very pertinent question, and and uh, well, we see the same. You know, there's a lot of interventions that are, you know, that there are at various stages of development that and and they have s- such challenges of adoption. Right, and uh, one one aspect that we we normally kind of advocate is uh, ensuring a needs-based approach, just to uh, realize that there is a finite resource, and we need to basically ensure that you know that's used in the best way possible. But 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 there is no right answer, unfortunately. Especially when you look at the spectrum of uh, the different methodological approaches with AI and machine learning. You know, in in some instances, yes, there are easy wins. But when you look at, for example, dynamic risk stratification uh, and generalizability and explainability associated with that, then it gets a bit tricky. So then there is this iterative cycle, and then you you like. How do you then reduce that workforce burnout where you are dependent on, say, for example, you know, clinical care champions within certain certain clinical terrains as well? So I think my take on this would be to focus on a needs-based approach, underpinned by the the most you know or highest patient impact.
0: Great, um, and Chris, over to you. Can you restate the question again, sorry, Matt? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, so Matt's talking about the more data. Uh, that you have, the more analysis you can do and the more questions we can ask. So how are you going to protect the workforce um, to ensure that they're, they're not burning out and their intelligence and insight is value driven? So um, so my organisation recently, we've done a really interesting piece of
2: research about recruitment rates and how those, um, you know, the, the ethnic and diversity mix on that. So that gives you some really so so I'm quite keen on on those on helping our own staff with our own um uh with a, with our own data that we already have um so to be able to say that a particular ethnic group is best likely to be recruited or a particular um in, in our own trust, it looks like that if you're female you're more likely to be recruited um interesting comments and, and things that we can then use to both challenge ourselves, um, if we're not, you know, cause we want to be fair to everybody, but also to help us on our journey to change, as we would say here, that's our, our strategy by now. So, um, I, I think, um, having lots of data, it's, you know, it can be overwhelming, can't it? I, I would suggest for lots of my, uh, um, board colleagues, um, I think we've got a real challenge to be able to Make our data explainable and so that it speaks to people, um, rather than just being data or an SBC chart. Um, and and I guess you know, you want to move into the the, the business of prediction. Um, if you look at of board reports, they're really um, managing an organisation by looking backwards. It's not really what you want to do because um, it doesn't really help anything. To, um, the only colleagues usually in the NHS trusts who are predicting the future are our finance colleagues who will tell you what the budgets look like, which is never very good. <laughs> but we don't seem to be able to do that in other spheres, which is, uh, I think, one of the, the, the big areas where
1: we've got real opportunity.
0: Great. And Phil, final thoughts from you.
1: Yeah. So there's, there's a lot to go out with this question, I think. So, surprise yeah. kind of surprisingly, I'm involved in lots of conversations about dates on a, on a daily basis. And I see a lot of what Zaheer and, and Chris had just mentioned, you know, Lots of conversations that I'm involved in, there's a, there's a sense that, you know, with some notes or, you know exceptions that the volume of data isn't necessarily the challenge, um, more often than not, that people are trying to grapple with. It's actually how you to generate that intelligence and insight to, to matzo so own in introductory remarks. And I think one of the the biggest kind of frustrations that, that I hear a lot in the conversations that I have now with colleagues in the workforce is they want more tools at their disposal to generate that insight as efficiently as possible. It's not necessarily that they want to generate huge, huge amounts of additional data per se to to fulfill their role. It's that critical step to go from data to insight, and what's one what of the best ways of of doing that? And I think uh, you know, I would say this when I'm based at NHS, but um, you know, giving them the options around what what innovations are coming through to help. Data analysis to generate the insight that's relevant to them in their role, uh, and hopefully by helping them um, yeah. deliver their role, we reduce the risk of burnout, which is in the in the question as well, because we give them a sense of they're able to do their their own role more efficiently, rather than being overwhelmed by increasing volumes of data to to Chris's point. So, so I think those were really the key things that, that I would. Okay, but yeah, it's it's a big and very timely question that we all recognise.
0: Brilliant. And I thought it would be good to lead on to Chris's here, um, given the conversation, the question. Um, Chris's is, is, how can we meet our analysis skill gap by promoting diversity and what initiatives can we employ to bridge this diversity gap? So Chris, I'm coming to you first with that one.
2: Okay. So, um, so yeah, I think this is uh, an element where um, our reflection in, in this organisation probably, I don't know if people would share this, but um, we don't seem to be, even though we're using really interesting data, because healthcare's quite interesting. It? Um, and even though we are, um, you know, providing a public good, we're a great employer, um, uh, we're not the first thought of a data science graduate at the NHS yet. Um, and and uh, I guess part of me feels really strongly that we need to be able to get people to think of us, if you like, um, uh, uh, and not think of just doctoring and nursing in the NHS, but actually think data science, because why not? It's a huge, huge opportunity, Um, a a way of doing really, really great work. And then I guess as part of that, it's what attracts people into these kinds of roles. Um, Are we offering uh, graduates, young people, um, people from different backgrounds and, and diverse groups, the things that they want in a, in a new role. Um, are they looking for a pension? Particularly, <laughs> I'm not sure they are. <laughs> I think they might be interested if you could say, well, you can, we can ha- be a very flexible employer and you can work four days a week and you can go surfing at the weekend. Um, they might be more interested in that, um. But those are the kind of things where I think we've got a real strength as a, as an organisation and as a as a um, as an employer to be able to support diverse groups um, because you know we do that for our for all our nurses and doctors all the time, so we should be able to easily do it for um, for people who are a bit more technical in their skill sets. So yeah, so I think there's a huge opportunity there. But I'd be interested in others' thoughts.
0: Yeah, lovely. I'll come to you, Phil.
1: Yes, yeah, so I do have a bit of experience in this space actually around how to kind of diversify the the workforce, in particular the analytical workforce. So, in a previous role, I was at the University of Leeds and the Leeds Institute for Data Analytics, and set up and run for a couple of years a, a data scientist intern program, and that was specifically targeted, at, um, you know, primarily people who had either just finished the first degree, occasionally a PhD. They were interested in data, but didn't really know what they wanted to do next. So they could go and work at the university for a year. It was a salaried post. Again, kind of exposure to kind of latest in career data analytics. Quite a lot of the projects were house related, not all of them were. Um, they used a couple of projects and it gave them a kind of an insight into how rewarding and fulfilling the roles can be to, to Chris's point about, you know, how, how do you make these sort of roles appealing in the long term? Well, if you give them a bit of a taster and let them figure out if it's a good, opportunity for them that that goes a, a long way. So I think about sixty or so people have been through that program now over the last five years or so. so so we' we got uh, diversity in, in a number of different ways in terms of uh, gender diversity was a particular thing that we were looking for there in the first couple of cohorts we were about fifty fifty which we were pleased with. um the other example is a similar variation on that team a little bit. It's a more recent one and, um, the last role before I joined where I am now, I was working on something called DataCam, which is, uh, funded by, uh, health data research UK, which is the UK's national Institute for, for health data science. And they're part of the 10,000 black interns program, which is an international program. Um, and they run their own kind of health data focused black intern program. Uh, they're just recruiting for their second or third, I've lost track of time. Um, And we uh, had a couple of interns on that program uh, join Datacom where I was based for, uh, that was a shorter one. It was only a few weeks. But the the one thing I will say about those sorts of uh, programs is uh, it's not just the interns who benefit. Actually, we as members of uh, the team hosting them, we really benefited from them bringing a different perspective to some of the challenges that we'd been facing. And we probably realized that actually we'd fallen into that trap of We'd become a bit of an echo chamber and the same ideas were bouncing around amongst us. And they came in and went, Well, haven't you thought about this? Or, oh, you know, so, um, so yeah, there, there are examples out there, and I'm a big fan of trying to implement those, uh, to address some of the points that Chris has out there.
0: Excellent. Uh, Matt, we'll come to you.
4: Um, well, I think the uh, what what both to uh, put. Both Chris and Phil were talking about is uh, people need to see themselves in in the role models that are there and and we're probably not doing enough to to make those role models visible um, and it, it's possibly because we're we're at the end of a a kind of a, an education chain that has inequality written right through it so that's that's a challenge we're also um Perhaps controversial. My my controversial point of the day is perhaps we need to look beyond STEM, the the science technology um, subjects, because what we actually want in data sciences uh, and analytics uh, is people who are curious and, and inquisitive minds and uh, and when I think back to the people I've worked with, some of the most inspirational people never started out in STEM subjects. Um, they found their passion. They had a passion for doing a good job. They were motivated. And they were just curious and they went away and they learned and they studied um, and, and they found that the, the skills that they needed to, to do the job really well. So um, I don't know, I mean, I, I, I do passionately believe we need more people in STEM, but I'm also of a view that actually if we're trying to um, put on stage the, the role models that we, we want to, to inspire people, then we've got to go where they are, and some of them aren't in STEM, but they're they're equally capable of giving that that
3: good um, that good message.
0: Brilliant. And lastly, to get your thoughts ahead.
3: Yeah, I think very similar to what has been already said. Very pertinent points. So, I I think from from my understanding and my experience, I think uh, one thing that perhaps uh, functions as a catalyst is you know to present opportunities to work on exciting these different projects because there are plenty out there in the healthcare space that have the potential to impact on patient outcomes but but in order to uh bridge that uh the, the skills gap and promote diversity then I think programs that have worked in the other organizations I've been in is just providing targeted as Phil said internships and scholarships promoting pay equality uh, you know I know that can be difficult in, in the public sector but you know some sort of a equality measure there, you know, make it easy for people to participate in, I guess, diverse employee resource groups as well. So those type of initiatives do function to work well to address this gap. Right. Brilliant.
0: So we will go on to Phil's question. So I've, uh, we've got a little bit of an explanation first in light of several recent funding commitments to improve data availability. And you've popped an, ex- um, an example on there the Federated Data Platform and Data for R&D. Are we investing enough in improving data quality? So I'd love to hear from you, Phil, if that's okay.
1: Yeah, sure. So just to give a bit of background for the uh, listeners who may not be familiar. So Federated Data Platform and Data for R&D are two reasonably large uh, programs that are ongoing at the moment. So Federated Data Platform, the most people on this call will be <laughs> at FTP, it will be relevant to them one way or another. And um, so that's a big procurement activity uh, that's going on at the moment. That's about, it's a big interoperability piece, primarily joining up systems. Um, data for R and D is, um, it's a bit like the research complement of something like the federated data platform in a way that they they not kind of coexist. Um, and again, it's a, it's an infrastructure investment program. So these are big chunks of money. So each. In turn, I think federated data platform, at least kind of 350-ish million. Uh, data for R&D all told is about 200 million if all of those funding commitments are met. So that's, you know, at least half a billion pounds worth of investment going into data infrastructure. And my question really is about is, is just having more data going to solve all of our problems. Um, and and as, as the question implies, I, I think there's an important aspect that we need to be thinking about together. And I can see the my other panellists, at these two of them, are chuckling away as well. So I'll open up the floor to to welcome comments about data quality
3: versus data volume. Excellent. Well, we'll go back to Zahir on this one, if that's all right. Um, 70% missing this, right? Uh, that's the that's the norm, I guess. right? Um, what 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 uh, what I'm finding more and more is there is a lot of emphasis on prospective observational core trials to just get you know standardization, but what's really refreshing is um, you know this investment in national and subnational security data environments, right? Uh, I think this would this will help in in removing the duplication and, and improving I think uh, data quality much needed uh, in fact, but because it places emphasis on Transparent management practices, you know there's industry approved standards accreditation frameworks in fact, we're just looking at them now, and then integrated analytics through you know perhaps a federated learning framework as well so we're moving in the right space that that eventually we we'll, we will we'll have a repository of well you know curated and process data sets then we can apply the relevant you know AI ml models to yield the best insights because at the moment there is a lot of you know fine tuning. That happens before any model is being you know, applied. So, yeah, I think we're moving in the right direction.
0: Well, that's good to hear. Um, Matt, coming to you.
3: Uh, well, I was just looking at the, the question
4: Are we investing enough in improving data quality? The answer is no. <laughs> I that, that, was, that was the note I made. Um, I think, but it's difficult. It's difficult to, to make a case for investing in data quality. Uh, and how do you know? You've got a data quality problem unless you actually try and do something with the data. So, it it these things are absolutely interconnected, and I think what we need to do is firstly manage expectations about the effort that go that is required to improve data quality. It's not, um, it's usually involving frontline staff because they're they're collecting the data in some way uh, right at the start of the journey, uh, and that they're hard. Pressed workforce to 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 engage with in terms of um uh, something which is again the data data is just inert isn't it really so um managing expectations about what what will need to go in once you find a data quality problem um and also emphasizing the limitations that data quality has on decision making uh, we we need to get a lot better at saying here's the intelligence we've got but these these are the limitations on what you can you can use that intelligence for because of data quality so it's having those two things i think will help drive data quality up but i do think probably the only way we can do it is if we start using these these investments to to manifest the problem
0: lovely thank you matt Uh, and final thoughts on that one from chris please yes um
4: we're doing a
2: a piece of work in, in the Trust of the Money Middle and uh you've come across surprisingly some data quality issues. Um we are when I've been talking to my, my boss, we we're not calling them data quality. I'm not using those words. It's clinical record keeping it's a clinical record keeping issue. It's not a data quality problem. Because a data quality problem means that they think it's my problem. <laughs> um whereas a clinical record keeping issue they, they start to go, ah, ah that's that's me, isn't it? Um and I guess that's one of the things that one of the things about all of this stuff is ownership isn't it it's about management fun um, and data has become a thing to manage you have to manage your people but you also have to manage your data um and i i, I guess that is when um you start to see a difference in in behaviors because that's what this is about this is about um, me managing a service and looking at my appraisal rates and some, one of my managers saying to me, yeah, yeah, well the data's wrong isn't it? Um, to which my usual response is, it's your data, get it right. (laughs) we're, We're digital and data people, so our data can't be wrong because we've got the systems, we manage the systems, we understand this stuff. Um, I think when you get into the clinical world, there has always been, unfortunately, um, a view that record keeping is subservient to clinical care. Now, if you go to the coroner's office, um, they will say that if it didn't get down, it didn't happen. Um, unfortunately, in mental health, we spend a lot of time in the coroner's office because every time someone has a suicide, unfortunately, we'll be, they'll be asking about the care that has happened, um, whether they're with our services or not. Um, but that makes the case for clinical records to be up-to-date, and that's what everyone would expect. Um, that doesn't mean that we then have a standardised way of describing mental health. Those are quite different problems. Those are hugely different problems because medical knowledge is ever-expanding, and we're trying to put a framework against it all the time. Um, so, so it's, So the short answer is, getting people to own their data is is one of the first steps and to recognizing it and going yes this is my data this is my service and to be proud of it um and then the second thing is there's a very hard question behind this which is how do you map medical knowledge and that's actually quite tough especially in mental health services physical health services is a lot better it's a lot easier to understand whether someone's had a good hip operation um measuring whether someone you've got a lifetime history of eating disorders is better. It is quite hard because you don't it's that mean there are up here. It's much harder in this space.
0: Okay. Interesting. Thank you for that. Um, and we're coming to our final question of uh, our podcast. So we've got, so here's how can we expedite the adoption and diffusion of AI and data driven interventions, particularly dynamic risk prediction models in practice. So if you can give us some background on that, I'd really appreciate it.
3: Yeah. Well, I guess the, the focus of the question was how can we, you know, accelerate the adoption of AI and data-driven interventions? And we've touched on a lot of this, and there was a very recently, very nice publication from the Accelerated Access Collaborative and NHS AI lab that, 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 that Summarized the barriers over that provided an overview of the barriers for in work and they touched on five core things. They looked at technological development and we looked at uh, the challenges of accessing high quality data. We've talked about that. Then there's site engagement and governance, you know, looking at variable approaches to information governance, intellectual property management, contracting, etc. And then there's obviously legal regulation and evidence, the cost and time associated with the uh, navigation for UKCA, mark or. You know challenges of uh, knowing when for example hra approval is required which we're, we're working on that you know and and providing clarity on that as well but then there's sustainable adoption and spread so looking at lack of clarity on how ai solutions should be funded and, and what is, is what is the post ai kind of deployment and surveillance kind of mitigation steps that that should happen and finally you know acceptance you know there's a reluctance from perhaps a healthcare setting that uh, and maybe from clinicians that uh, um, that AI would actually function as a superior decision support uh, type tool. So there are these that come on persistent longitudinal pro- pro- problems and challenges. I just wanted to get the panel's opinion on, on where they see what what the problem space is, but where they see the opportunities are as well.
0: Okay. All right. Lovely. Um, and I'm coming to you, Matt, for this one first.
4: It's, it's a really good question, actually. I think, um, you know, on, on the face of it, AI, you've got to overcome people's fears. About uh, using using this, and and some of that's about helping them understand what the genuine risks are of using AI, because you know there, there'll be a lot of people who think that the robots are taking over. And um, uh, I think so. So if you can explain the risk in simple terms, and and I think that's about explaining the confidence levels. A, a lot of AI involves quite complex mathematics and um, and people talk about confidence intervals or, or confidence levels, and I think they're 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 mathematical terms. But what you need to do is you need to convert those into into simpler terms that help people understand what level of confidence they can have if they make a decision based on that AI data about whether it's right or not. Um, the other thing I think um, which which has been shown. Um, uh, a number of times in in sort of international research is that a lot of ai and data driven interventions are based on bayesian mathematics and bayesian methods and that simply takes what we've seen in the past and models through what we might expect to see in the future or, or what we're seeing at any given time and there is a there's a a genuine concern I think about inequalities in and if you only ever look at what's happened in the past and you translate all the institutional and systemic inequalities into your analysis and we've seen that where, you know, we've had certain um, algorithms not address diversity questions particularly well. So if we want to, for me, if we want to promote the um, the adoption and diffusion of, of AI, we've got to help people overcome their natural and genuine concerns about inequalities and and understanding can I make a decision based on this and will it be what degree of confidence can I have in that decision?
0: Okay, hopefully. Chris, coming to you. I think it's, um, Mark made one of the points
2: I I wanted to make really, really well there actually, Um, and that there is an element where if we're not careful, we use the data we have to build the same society again. Um, that's not what we want to do. What we want to do is build a better society. We don't want to um, have algorithms that have elements of sexism, racism, etc. in it. Um, so that's a really good point. I think my other thought on the question of AI is that there is an element where what I see with um, my colleagues is that they're expecting not a... They're expecting a yes or no answer rather than a risk-based answer. Um, they expect data to tell them yes or no um, and it's not going to do that. If you're going to predict something to happen, it's with a degree of risk um, and that's quite hard in a regulatory setting like healthcare because um, they really want it to be fairly, fairly certain. Um, before they take the decision on whether to prescribe something or, or how to treat a patient and of course i'm i'm looking at it from my perspective in mental health where it's very individualized rather than say as a you know large cohorts of people and who maybe are giving better hip operations to um so uh I, 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 there's part of me that is an inner skeptic i never i never want to have a Uh, an AI solution that I can't understand why it's made the decision. Um, I want to be able to explain the algorithm, the algorithm needs to be able to be explained. Because again, if we're not careful, if we don't know why it's making a decision, it might be using something that that actually isn't very helpful. Um, But yeah, those are my thoughts.
0: Brilliant. Phil? What about you?
1: Yeah, so this is a very familiar space for me across, um, you know, working in NHSN. We do a lot of this every day. A lot of the innovators that we're working with is looking at how to adopt and spread their innovations are in the kind of AI and data-driven space. Um, so there are lots of different aspects to this. And uh, Matt and Chris have touched on a couple of the really important ones around explainability in particular, um, and also uh, needed to make sure that we're not inadvertently and unintentionally reinforcing pre-existing health inequalities. Um, I think the, the other big one that, that I see quite a lot is um, making sure you're not a solution looking for a problem. Um, actually, I think we need innovators to understand, have a sufficient understanding of the healthcare system and its challenges to develop solutions that address those challenges. That That would really accelerate the adoption and spread of innovation. And the reason I say that is because you've found you've got an audience that within you know the healthcare system who who are looking for that because you are addressing their challenge. Um, and we do see a lot of innovators who you know, they may have amazing tech and um, what they don't really understand is how it's relevant to the healthcare system. And that as soon as you, you put them in front of, well, we wouldn't, but if you had to put them in front of, you no, know, CCIO, clinician, whoever it is, they just go, This isn't relevant to me. It's not relevant to me and my patients. So there has to be a really robust understanding of what the healthcare challenges are of today. And if you're if you're really good, you you might have an, an inkling about what the future challenges are as well and how your technology can start to anticipate some of those. But but yeah, no know, know the system would be a top tip How would give to any uh innovator in this particular space. And I
2: guess hidden underneath that, Phil, there's an assumption that you can make the system more efficient using technology, technology, which I would agree with, but there ain't no way in a million years that that you can um, create a, with an algorithm, you can fix the number of beds in a hospital or the number of beds in a care home. You can't make the system flow if the system doesn't have the things that it needs um in order to so there's an element where uh because i hear exactly what you're saying solutions looking for problems have come across my desk in the past <laughs> um i some of those were national i won't say which ones yeah
1: yeah I, th- I think part of that as well uh chris is the level of expectation that's been built up around this two-letter acronym you know N- ai is like <laughs> Is it going to be the panacea to solve all yeah. the problems? I can remember, I can remember hearing, I was driving into work one day, a former health secretary, she spent a lot of time in the jungle, boldly claim <laughs> that AI was bigger than Brexit. And this was in like 2017, 18, so Brexit was a really big thing at that point. It still is, but the, the kind of public discourse around AI is just, it's massive, isn't it? Um, and, and it's getting beyond you know being manageable in terms of operational delivery, people actually really understanding what's possible with these technologies, and people jump way ahead uh, of where it right. and where it actually is. I think I said to someone once, "I don't mind artificial intelligence,
2: but I really, really just intelligence would be nice. That would be lovely for us,
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> because I don't see a huge amount of that." Controversial. I love that, yeah, Chris. I didn't slightly expected that slightly. from you. <laughs> <laughs> um just before we come to the end here does anyone want to add on to anything said or any of the points made today matt go ahead
4: um just reflecting on the um on the conversation we were having about uh increasing diversity in the workforce and and i think that was linked as well to the idea of how do we avoid burnout how do we get the right capacity in the right place um i know there is uh because I saw it this morning actually, how topical is that? NHS England have got a survey out to um, explore um, sort of data in digital uh, professions and recruitment and retention for those individuals. So um, there's probably an opportunity for people to contribute their views to how we might manage that challenge.
0: Perfect. Um, I just wanted to say thank you all so much for joining the panel today. It's, It's been very insightful for me to listen to as well and i'm sure those listening will agree uh once again our guests on today's podcast have been phil at yorkshire and humber ahsn chris so and matt great to see you and we will speak soon hopefully